I love the energy and enthusiasm that students bring to the table. I find that a huge source of energy. Uh, it revitalizes me and it gives me hope for the future. Great, so I'm sitting here with Roland Carthouse on 15 Minutes With. Roland, could you introduce yourself, please? Thank you, Josh. I'm Roland Carthouse. I'm a director at Matter Architecture, and I also teach and research at the University of East London. Uh, as an architect, I'm interested in health and well-being as the main objective of the work that we do, which is why I engage with the Urban Health Council. Part of what we do is drive our architecture through research. And one of the things that we've been doing is looking at how the design of the built environment affects people's health and well-being. Recently, we completed a piece of research with the Ministry of Justice, looking at the design of prisons to try and see how the conditions in prison could be improved to support people's health and well-being and therefore support them on their journey back into society as a rehabilitative measure. It was a really interesting piece of research and we were lucky enough to be able to work within a prison, uh, Britain's newest prison, HMP Berwyn, and work with people in the prison, both uh, in custody and the staff to understand the way that the built environment affects them. And to build our research on that was a really fascinating piece of work. It's not an area that we're designing as architects, we're not designing prisons. But the interesting thing about the built environment is that it affects us in ways that we don't necessarily understand, but that have quite universal underpinnings. And that was what we explored through our work with uh, an environmental psychologist. Awesome, thank you, Roland. So on to question number one, what's the best health-focused project you've seen or worked on? So I live in uh, Walthamstow in East London, and the example I'd like to talk about is slightly controversial. Uh, it's the Mini Holland Low Traffic Neighbourhood Scheme, which I live right in the centre of, and it was the first of its kind in London. I'd start by saying that it's far from perfect. The consultation wasn't really good enough. Uh, people with accessibility needs rightly did feel sidelined a bit in the process and it's for sure that the detailed design did have lots of early problems. I think it's learning a bit as it goes and in some areas it has prioritised bicycles too much over pedestrians for example. Low traffic neighbourhoods have been uh, rolled out uh, in other areas of London and have met further controversy and I think there's an ongoing discussion about the best way that they can be uh, that, the, that they can be achieved. But I think it's also true to say that the health benefits really can't be argued with. Uh, a former colleague of mine from the University of East London, who's now at uh, Westminster, Dr. Rachel Aldred, has done some amazing work in studying these health impacts, and they're really quite astonishing. It has completely changed what people see the street as being used for. And I personally think it should go further still. Some people still feel that it's restricting their freedom to drive. Some of my neighbours still, um, still find it very difficult, are still against it. But it's often forgotten that a lot, a lot of people don't have cars, don't have their own cars. 
And everyone should be able to use public space and not have their health severely compromised by the private motor car. Furthermore, electric vehicles aren't going to change that. This isn't just about air quality, although the work that Rachel Aldred has done has mainly been looking about the benefits from hugely improved health quality and the outcomes, for, especially for children's health, are just can't be argued with. But it's also about health arising from social and interaction in the public realm through more active travel uh, and, and so on, and just being able to use the space in, in more um, active and, and varied ways. I think this is really important. And I think it's, it's, a, uh, uh, it's, an, it's a demonstration of how the built environment should be working to support us uh, both in health terms and equality terms. Excellent. I think it's a great example to pick on because there's an argument to say that I'd almost add an S before the low traffic and what we're really looking for is slow traffic we're looking to actually slow space and energy down and we, you know as you said about the dominance of speed on our roads the the need to throw things through our city as quickly as possible has now made public realm almost inaccessible to people the idea if we can slow life down maybe we can live it a little bit more i think that's one of the really charming things to think about with the Sort of low traffic or as we've talked about the urban health council more equitable mobility zones of which lower traffic or slower traffic uh, vehicle movement can be very crucial but interesting insight because i know you're a cyclist and uh, so it might be to actually say that perhaps it's prioritized too much cycling i think it's a, an interesting uh, perspective to bring up and certainly one with a, a lens of humility but uh, let's move on to Question two, unless there's something you want to say about Yeah, that. I just wanted to pick up on that, actually, because I think um, I agree with you that it's about trying to reduce speed. But I think that's only part of the picture. It's also about the equitable use of space. And in uh, the density of a, even an outer uh, area like Walthamstow within London, the demands of use of public space are, are high. And it doesn't seem to me to be fair or equitable to be using that space so greatly for the storage of large private vehicles when that same space could be used for more equitable um, uh, and, and more intensity of different kinds of uses. And I think the example of prioritising bicycles over pedestrians illustrates that perfectly and is, is one of the areas where I think low traffic neighbourhood design needs to improve in that where the space isn't sufficient to provide both cyclists, to provide fully for both cyclists and pedestrians, both have been compromised when in fact, in my view, the, the use of the road space for private motor vehicles should be the one that compromises further to make sure that other forms of active travel and better use of the public realm are the things that are prioritised. No, all fair point, thank you. So question number two, what code of policy or practice do you want to see changed? So I'm very interested in planning as an, as a, an activity, as a, a, a an area of, of government action. Um, I sit on the RIBA's planning advisory group. And so I'm interested in how uh, the essentially abstract idea of policies have real and concrete effects in the real world. 
planning is supposed to take into account public health, but the way that public health impacts are measured lags way behind our knowledge and understanding of how the built environment actually affects people's public health. In planning, it's too narrowly defined and it's reductive. And then furthermore, it's deprioritized by economic arguments. So whenever there's a conversation about the impacts or, or whether, whenever there's a, uh, a, a, a debate about the public health impacts versus the economic arguments, it always seems as though the economic arguments are used to push the public health requirements down the priority list. Now, I believe this is actually a false dichotomy. The example I gave earlier about Walthamstow's low traffic neighbourhood, Walthamstow has, the economy has boomed, not in spite of the low traffic neighbourhoods, actually because of it, because people are, are more in the public realm are making better use of local services, of facilities, of shops, and so on. And I firmly believe that if public health was the primary objective of planning, our built environment would look and behave very differently. Unfortunately, I think the current planning reforms that the government are progressing, at, at least in what has been made public, give the impression of moving in the opposite direction. And furthermore, the government zero carbon transport policy, which was launched yesterday, is, appears to be completely failing to address public health. The idea that technical solutions are the answer to these problems, I think everybody knows that isn't true. I, I would also say the Town and Country Planning Association have done a lot of good work in this area. They've worked with Public Health England and the NHS and looked at not just the contents of planning that should be applied to make places support public health, but actually the process that's needed to put public health first and foremost. So that's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see public health be the main priority for planning. Awesome. I think it's a great answer. And it's not, uh, and I don't mean to do this, but bring it to me, but it, it just echoes a point that Amazon isn't killing the high street, the high street's killing us. And that was the title of a, an article I wrote a while ago, uh, based on both of like, the quantitative work that we do at Centric Lab, but also the qualitative feedback that you generally get from people when they say, oh, I've just got back from the shops. I'm knackered. And it is that sensation we say, oh, let's pop into town or let's go down to the high street. It is exhausting. And that's because we don't have our high streets prioritised around a sense of dwell, around a sense of health, around a sense of being. It's a sense of doing and consuming. So I think it's, it's such a perfect hook of how do we treat urban planning as healthcare by understanding and regulation rather than treating healthcare as urban planning which is a slightly different way of looking at things. And I would say that urban planning is healthcare because it is the regulation of activity in order to not have externalities causing health outcomes, which is what you're saying. So I think, uh, yeah, I think we're both on the same side of the tennis court here, Roland. So it's, um, and very much articulating why you're part of the Urban Health Council, which is great. So uh, moving on to the kind of idea of your peer network or people who inspire you, like if you, if other people listening to this, uh, who are, you know, we're always inspired and influenced by people around us or people we don't know. So who would be three people that you admire in your sort of professional peer network that could be across any discipline uh, that other people should go read about or follow? Let's think about some knowledge mobility, some knowledge sharing with this kind of question. Thanks, Josh. Um, I think that architects are too often guilty of 
forming echo chambers. So I'm always on the lookout for interesting people who are making change, perhaps in my area of interest in the built environment, but in from other directions and other areas of, of, of life and professional activity. You mentioned high streets, and uh, I am very uh, in, in great admiration of um, uh, the uh, Vidya Alekerson, who is the CEO of an organization called Power to Change, and they fund uh, community organizations to revitalize their local neighborhoods, and they have a particular interest in rethinking the way that the high street is constituted, thinking of it as a community-led civic space rather than an institutional civic space, as a community-led civic space. As we were discussing before we start this conversation, my practice is doing work in high streets and I'm appointed as a high streets task force expert. And a lot of the things that you were just saying there are very true that the, uh, the things that will make a big difference to people's experience of the high street are quite often very little things, public toilets, uh, seating, places to dwell, simple measures, which policy doesn't guarantee, unfortunately. It could do, but it doesn't. But another way of thinking about that is if, our, if these spaces were really stewarded and managed by local community organisations, again, they would look very differently. And that's the... That's the thinking, I think, behind Power to Change's work. And Vidya Alekison is very um, good at communicating that publicly via Twitter and other, uh, other mediums. Another person uh, I'd like to reference is Sadie Morgan. She's well known as an architect, but she knows that change has to come from the wider industry. And the Quality of Life Foundation she, she set up is based on the idea that housing is first and foremost, foremost about supporting health and well-being. The third example, as you mentioned, um, like you, I really enjoy cycling. Uh, and I'd like to mention Manny Arthur, who set up the Black Cyclist Network. It's a cycling club aimed squarely at changing the exclusive nature of what is my favourite sport. He's outspoken about the discrimination that he's experienced firsthand. And the main purpose of the club is to make cycling more accessible to people from BAME backgrounds. But having said that, you don't have to be black to join and you don't even have to be good at cycling. The most important thing is the club exists to expand and, and make cycling more inclusive. Cycling, I, cycling is something I find incredibly important for my mental health. And I feel so lucky to be able to jump on my bike and go for a ride. But for many people, the fear of other road users, both drivers and in fact cyclists, is just too off-putting and that needs to change. Brilliant. I think those are three great people and a good range of uh, people to follow. I'm going to go look at all three of them. I've never heard of them before. So thank you very much for me, at least. Uh, so Ronan, question four, which is the, predominantly the last one uh, for this 15 minutes with. So there's there's a lot of challenges out there, uh, picking from whatever corner of the world or theme or economy you want to look at it. There's a lot out there. But what you know, where do you find hope? In, in what you do that inspires you to keep pushing, to keep pushing up against the grain, to go, look, guys, this is a great new way to do things. You know, this takes a lot of mental energy to be able to push against something, to, to drive change. It takes a lot of mental energy and fortitude. So where do you find the hope and the drive that enables you to put in that extra energy, that time to do what you do? 
Well, I teach architecture at the University of East London, and it has been, it's been an incredibly difficult year. In, everybody's found it difficult in so many different circumstances. But our students at the university have faced huge challenges this year due to lockdown. And it's on a course that's always relied heavily on face-to-face -face teaching. So we've all had to make a lot of adjustments. But the response from the students has been amazing. And the work that's been produced this year is outstanding. I'm not sure that it's true that, that working entirely remotely can ever replace that face-to-face engagement that you get in a in an architecture school but nonetheless I think I've been amazed at the way that the students have responded to it and I love the energy and enthusiasm that the students bring to the table I find that a huge source of energy uh, it revitalizes me and it gives me hope for the future that's brilliant that's brilliant I love it um I think it will keep it quite simple, Rona. So what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Uh, is it through your Twitter? Is it learning more about Matter? Like how would you ask people to, if someone wants to go, uh, I want to get in touch with Rona, what's the best way to either sort of follow what you have to say or rant about, or what's the best way to get in contact with more about what you are doing and what your mind is offering? Sure. Well, I'm quite active on Twitter at Brolin's Carthouse, uh, but it tends to be uh, as much about my uh, personal interests, cycling and so on, as it is about architecture. Uh, so not always wholly professional tweets. I'm also on LinkedIn. You're welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn. If you're interested in the work of our practice and particularly all of our research is published on our website, then go to matterarchitecture.uk. And of course, you can contact us via the website. That's great. So unless there's anything else you want to add, Rowan, thank you very much for joining today and look forward to catching you soon. Thanks for having me. Fifteen Minutes With has been made possible by generous supporters and donators to Centric Lab via our Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash Centric Lab, as well as our Urban Health Council sponsors, the National Lottery Community Fund. If you're interested in more information about this, please visit urbanhealthcouncil.com. Thanks.